I know, I know that we have uh, many visitors with us today, and you're here for the holiday weekend, and we're very happy that you've decided to come and be with us this morning. I also know that we have many out of town traveling for the Thanksgiving holiday. Listen, I hope that you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I hope that you enjoyed it uh, with family and friends, and I hope that you had at least a few moments to think about all the ways that God has blessed you. Probably by this point, you have left Thanksgiving in the rearview mirror, and you're already looking ahead to the next holiday, and you have already been dragging out those Christmas decorations. Uh, But let me tell you, for Christians, Thanksgiving should never be in the rearview mirror. Am I right? Tonight at six o'clock, I'm going to preach a sermon about how we ought to celebrate Thanksgiving all year round, how we should be living lives full of gratitude to God for all the ways that he's blessed us. And I hope that you'll come back and join us for our evening worship at six. Uh, This morning, we're going to start a new series that's going to close out this year. I can't believe that 2016 is almost at an end. Where did the year go? Uh, But I can't think of a better way to end this year than than by reflecting on our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be looking at some amazing, marvelous truths about our Lord and Savior, about the Son of God that come from the book of Colossians. And I'm excited about delving into these with you. But before we get into Colossians, where I want to start this morning is in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 17, and you're welcome to turn there if you like, but I do have the text up here for your convenience. Let me set the scene for you. In the 17th chapter of Acts, Paul is in the Greek city of Athens. And Athens was a very cosmopolitan, worldly place. It was a big city. It wasn't like Winchester or even Tullahoma or some of the other rural towns in our area. This was a big, bustling city. And when Paul gets to Athens, he begins to notice some things about their culture that he wants to address with the truth of the gospel. And in, uh, in particular, Paul wants to counter the empty philosophies that are being circulated by some of the leading thinkers, some of the leading Greek thinkers of this era. And most importantly, Paul wants to counter the idolatry that he sees everywhere uh, in the city of Athens with the message of Jesus Christ, with the gospel. So listen to how he's about to preach a sermon, and it's not in a church building, it's out in a gathering place in the middle of the city, Uh, And I want you to look at how he begins in verse 22 of Acts 17. Paul says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So he starts out by finding some common ground. We've been learning about that in evangelism class. Uh, And he praises them for uh, their piety, for, for their religious mindedness. But then listen to what he says. As I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. They built an altar and they said, we don't know who this God is, but we're sure there's a deity out there that we don't know about, but but he probably exists. And so we're going to erect this altar and say, this is to the unknown God. Now, fast forward 2000 years. And there is a similar belief that persists in our society, in our culture. And that is, There's probably a God out there. I bet there's a higher power. There may be a divine being, but he cannot be known. Uh, He is inscrutable. He's 
incomprehensible. Uh, He is beyond understanding. He's unknowable. He's probably out there, but we can't know who he is or what he's all about. Now, one of the boldest claims of Christianity is this. God can be known. God can be known. Listen to what Paul says after he begins his sermon. After he acknowledges that there's this altar with an inscription that says to the unknown God. He says, what you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm here to tell you who this unknown God actually is. I am here to reveal his identity to you. He's out there, yes, he's real, but he can be known. You don't have to continue to refer to him as an unknown deity. I'm here to tell you about his identity and about his character. Now here's a claim of Christianity that's equally bold. God can be known because he's made himself known. We don't have to search high and low as detectives or sleuths to figure out who this God is. God has revealed Himself to us throughout human history. It's not on us to figure out who He is. God has taken the responsibility. God has acted in order to show us who He is. God can be known because He's taken the initiative to make Himself known. Through many ways. Through the things He has made, for instance. God has made Himself known. Paul talks about this in uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Paul says that God's power uh, and His divine nature can be clearly seen in creation. So anytime you have gazed upon a waterfall or a mountain range or a sunset and you've said or you've thought to yourself, how could anybody look at this beautiful creation and not believe in God? I bet many of you have thought that or said that. You're appealing to the same argument that Paul makes in Romans Chapter 1, he says God's power, God's deity, His divine nature can be clearly seen in this magnificent creation that He's made for us to, to live in and to enjoy. And so God has made Himself known through all that He's made. But God has also made Himself known throughout history through His mighty deeds. And we could spend the rest of the day recounting all of the mighty deeds of God. Here's just a sampling. He destroyed by flood the world that He created. He made the sun stand still. That's in the book of Joshua. He parted the waters of the Red Sea, as Scripture says, with a mighty hand. And you know something else that I believe? God has the power even today to eradicate disease, even a disease like cancer. And if you don't believe it, just ask my good brother, Delbert Reed, if he believes it. I bet he does. God is powerful, and through His mighty deeds, we can know that He exists. He was powerful in the days the Scriptures were written. He's powerful today. And that is a proof that God is out there. He's made Himself known through His powerful deeds. God has made Himself known through giving the law. At Mount Sinai, He revealed His will for His people. That's in Exodus chapter 20. And He enters into a covenant relationship with His people. He reveals Himself in that way. And... God has made Himself known through the Scriptures. This book, the Bible, that we carry around with us, that we have access to in many ways, it's a holy book. This book shows us God's character. And it 
shows us how he's dealt with his people, his activity in human history for thousands of years. God can be known because he's made himself known. In Charles Dickens' classic A Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge is confronted by three different spirits on Christmas Eve. There's the spirit of Christmas past, of Christmas present, and of Christmas yet to come. And my favorite is the spirit of Christmas present. He's the least uh, creepy of all the spirits. But he's loud, uh, and he's boisterous, and he's jovial, but Scrooge can't figure out who he is or He can't understand why he's come or what he's come to communicate to to this old miser, Ebenezer Scrooge. And so, what is the invitation that he offers to Scrooge? Come in and know me better, man. Come in and know me better, man. That is, in effect, the invitation that God has been making to his people from the beginning of time. God, from the beginning of creation, has been communicating and saying to humanity, Come to know me better. I want to reveal myself to you. Now, in all these marvelous ways, God shows us His might, uh, His creativity, His wisdom, His timelessness. We could go on and on. He has shown us Himself. He has made Himself known. And then at a single point in human history, God says, Come with me. I want to show you how I reveal myself most clearly. And he leads us to a small destitute town. And he guides us past the homes and the shops and into a stable. And he takes us inside where the air is thick with the stench of farm animals. And he points to a young teenage girl in plain clothes. And there's an, an ordinary man. They're both kneeling beside a feeding trough. And he moves us toward the trough And we peer inside where a tiny infant sleeps on a bed of hay. And God says to us, right in there, that's my son. That's me in human form. You're kidding me, God. That tiny little helpless baby, that's you? Yes, that's me. And he will show my character to the world better than anything I've ever done and anything I will ever do. This is the supreme expression of me. You want to know a Christian claim that is bolder than the first two that we've made? That God can be known and that God can be known because He's made Himself known? Here it is. Jesus Christ is the ultimate revelation of God. That is a bold conviction that we as Christians hold that this man, Jesus, who is also Lord and the Son of God, that, that He is the supreme expression of God, that better than anything else, He shows us who God is, that God has made Himself known in this man, this teacher, this rabbi, this one who was known as a prophet, but who revealed Himself as the very Son of God, as God in the flesh. God has made Himself known most clearly through Him. And in the book of Colossians, Paul spells out this truth three times in the first, three, uh, first two chapters, with increasing intensity each time. Look at what Paul has to say in Colossians, starting in chapter 1, verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, he says, He is the image of the invisible God. Now let that sink in for a moment. God cannot be seen, 
God cannot be perceived with the human eyes. But Jesus has given us an image of this God. Paul in Colossians 1.19 For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This seems to turn it up a notch. All the fullness, all of God's divinity and deity was pleased to dwell in this man who we recognize as the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Wow. And then Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in Him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The fullness of this big, mighty, powerful, spiritual God has limited Himself inside a human being like like me or you, inside a body. All the fullness of God dwelt bodily in Jesus Christ. I could live to be a thousand and never fully mind the depths of that truth. What about you? I mean, you believe this from the very beginning of your life as a Christian, and yet, can can you yet wrap your mind around it? Have you fully grasped it? Have you pinned it down yet? I sure haven't. This is one of the most mysterious, amazing truths and beliefs that we have as Christians. Unless you think we're drifting off into some abstract doctrine, this has a very practical aspect to it. But in this way, because Jesus is God, He shows us how to live a God-honoring life. If you've ever wondered what God's like, just look to Jesus. Jesus shows us what happens when God has legs. He shows us where God would go if God had legs. He shows us if God had hands, what kinds of things He'd do with those hands. He shows us if God had a human mouth like me and you, what kinds of words He would speak with that mouth. If you want to be more like God, if you want your life to better reflect the glory of God, then look no further than God in the flesh. Look at the places where Jesus went. Look at the things that He did. Look at the words that He spoke. And you're looking at the very actions of God Himself. Now, John has a helpful term that hopefully allows us to understand a little bit better this, what we're talking about Jesus here, that He's God in the flesh. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, John the Gospel writer says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and I'm going to skip down here to verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word, word, is used four times in the excerpt that I've picked out of the Gospel of John. Four times, capital W. And if you've been in church for a while, you know that here John is referring to Jesus. That word, capital W, is referring to the Son of God. But why would John use this word to refer to Jesus? Well, the term in the Greek is logos. This is in the original language. And this this word means an idea expressed. You would use this word for stating, I want to say a word about that. And so Jesus is when God says, I want to say a word, not just a word, but the word about myself. Jesus is God expressed in human form. There's a tribe uh, in Africa called the, the Hedi tribe. And they speak the Hidi language, and they're found mostly in Cameroon and Nigeria. And 
This is hard to believe, but the first translation of the Bible into the Hidi language wasn't made available to those people until December 2013. Think about that. Think about how long we've had the Bible in English. There's nobody alive that has, that has not had the Bible in their own native tongue. But these people, they only had the Bible in their language since 2013, just three short years ago. Leading up to, re- to the release of this translation, the translators had a really tough time finding a word in this language, in the Hadi language, for God's love. There were some words available to them. For instance, there was the word Devi, which meant in their language that you once felt love for somebody, but that love faded over time. And that just wasn't the right term to capture God's love. There was also the word Deva, which means... You love somebody because they do things for you. But that wasn't the right word either. Then the translators stumbled upon a neglected, almost a a word that that was not even in use anymore. And that word was devu. And devu means to love somebody unconditionally. Not because of who they are, but because of who you are. To love somebody no matter what they are or what they do. And that's the word that they selected to go in the translation to speak of God's unconditional love for humanity. In helping to render the scriptures in this language, they found the the absolute perfect word to describe God's love. And likewise, Jesus is God's perfect word to describe God. Himself. Yes, God has revealed Himself in a lot of amazing ways throughout history, which, which we cataloged earlier. But Jesus is the supreme expression of God. He is the one who translates God the best for the world. And speaking of love, after all the marvelous ways that God has revealed Himself, how is it that this humble child that we gazed upon in the manger just a few moments ago, How is it that He is the ultimate expression of God? Well, it's because at the center of His being, God is love. 1 John 4, verse 8. And what better way for God to show His love for all humanity than to give of Himself, than to say, I will go to the earth And be like the precious people that I created in order to show them a better way to live and in order to redeem them into a relationship with me. God became a human just like me and you because he loved us. Long ago, there was a king in Persia. He was a wise and a good king and he loved his people and he wanted to know how they lived. He wanted to know about their hardships. And so often he would dress in the clothes of a working man or a beggar. And he would go into the homes of the poor. And no one that he visited ever knew that he was their king. Well, one time he visited a very poor man, lived down in a cellar. And the king went in plain clothes and he ate the the nasty, coarse food that the poor man ate. And he spoke cheerful, kind words to him. Words of of love and tenderness that this poor man had not heard in years. And then he left. Well, later on, he came back to this same poor man. And he said, you know, 
And he recalled his visit earlier and he said, you know what? I need to tell you something about myself. I'm actually your king. I'm the ruler of the nation in which you live. And the king thought that the man would ask for a gift or a favor or some money or something. But he didn't. Instead, this poor man said to the king, you left your palace and your glory to come and visit me in this dark and dreary place. You ate the coarse food that I ate. You brought gladness to my heart. You know, to others, you've given your rich gifts. You can continue to give your rich gifts to others if you'd like. But to me, your presence is gift enough. You have given yourself. And our King gives Himself to come and become like us and redeem us. And so that's why Jesus is the supreme expression of God. Because it's through Jesus that we see God's love and His care for us most clearly in His, willing, in His willingness to take on flesh, to become a man, to humble Himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross for our sake. Returning to Paul in Athens as he continues his sermon to the people gathered there in that public arena, He says in verse 27 something that applies to all mankind. And he makes that clear. Paul says, everybody on earth should seek God. That's what we should all be doing. In the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. It's almost at this point that it seems like Paul is saying that God is difficult to find. That God is hard to get to know. That it's hard to come to understand who this God is, but listen to what he says next. Though actually, he's not far from any of us. God can be known. Because God has made himself known. God has made himself known most clearly to Jesus Christ. So in fact, God isn't far. In fact, he's very near. So near, that in Jesus' time on earth, you could actually touch him and see Him, and hear Him preach, and by the faithful and accurate witness of the Gospel writers, we can still touch Him in a sense. And we can see Him in our mind's eye, teaching and healing, and we can still hear His teachings. And we believe, just as they believed, we trust in those eyewitness accounts. And we know by faith, That Jesus Christ wasn't just some ordinary man. Wasn't just some guy that we think is a good example, a good moral teacher. That's what a lot of people think about Jesus these days. No. He was those things. But so much more. He was the Son of God. He was Lord. He was Savior. He was God. God in the flesh. The one who shows us who who God is most clearly. So the question this morning is, Do you know my Jesus? When you come to know Jesus, you know God. When you understand who Jesus is and what He's all about, you come to understand the very heart of God because Jesus is the supreme expression of God. This morning, you have a chance to come and to know Him. He is the Savior who can deliver you from your sins. He is the only one who can bring you into life and health 
and wholeness and who can deliver you to a kingdom that will last forevermore in the presence of God. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then I would encourage you to come this morning and to make Him the Lord of your life. By confessing that before all these people, by repenting of your sins, by deciding to be buried in water for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll come up out of that pool a new creature, ready to walk in newness of life. You'll be a member of the Lord's church. You'll be pure and spotless. You'll be part of God's family. You can make that happen right now. Or if you have any other spiritual needs, if there's something you need us to pray about, we'd be more, happy, more than happy to do that. Or if you're struggling with something, you don't want to make it known in this gathering, but you'd like to speak to a couple of our elders, they'll be available for you in the conference room. We always do this. We always sing a song of encouragement and invitation. And we're going to do it now. And we invite you to come if you have a need while we stand and sing.